Hey friends, I'm Renee. And I'm Ana Paula de Cerqueira Lima Grillo. And you're listening to Fangirl Happy Hour. Welcome to episode 75. We are going to be talking about reset media and culture, and then we're going to dig into The King of Atolia by Megan Wendell Turner and Disra by Gabrielle Squalia. We were going to discuss Black Panther this week, but we changed it because Anna finally got to see Hidden Figures. Finally, after all this time, it reached the UK, and we wanted to discuss it before the details faded from both of our memories. We'll definitely be discussing Black Panther soon, so if you've read it, hang tight, and if you haven't, it's out now to put into your brain. Yes, I finally did see Hidden Figures because the UK, for some reason, just show us Marvel movies before America, but historical relevant movies months after it comes out. Bad UK, but I finally did see it. I can't wait to see what you thought about Viscera. Oh, Viscera. Well, here we go. It's been a few weeks, so I thought it was a good time to recap our media adventures. Anna, what's on your list? A couple of things only. I haven't been watching or reading a lot because of things happening back home in Brazil. But I did manage to see a few documentaries that I loved on the BBC. One of them was about Easter Island, and it was a documentary that's one hour and a half long presented by Dr. Jago Cooper. This is the best name for an archaeologist TV presenter. And he has done a couple of other documentaries about pre-Columbian civilizations in Latin America, and they were great. And when he did this one about Easter Island, I was super excited because I used to be obsessed about Easter Island. I totally believed it was aliens when I was a teenager. I was super into lost civilizations of the world, Eric von Däniken and all of those sorts of books that say that the pyramids were built by aliens and the continent of Lemuria was a continent of people who escaped from Antarctica and they were all aliens who together built our civilizations. So if you like that, why don't you like Stargate. I don't think Stargate was ever in Brazil, and I never had a chance to watch it. Wow, if you like the pyramids were created by aliens, you gotta watch Stargate. We gotta watch that movie together. I think I did watch the movie. We need to rewatch it, because it's amazing. Okay, back to your media. I also watched another documentary on the BBC. It was about the SAS, the Special Air Force, that was created during World War II. And it's basically Band of Brothers, but on speed. Because it was this highly intelligent, smart dudes that wanted to go about the war in a different way, but couldn't handle the discipline of being part of an army. So these dudes just got together, went to Africa, created this group of paramilitary operations that basically destroyed the Nazi operation in North Africa. And then they won they went to Europe to join the war effort there and kind of like things changed a little bit. But the stories were amazing what these dudes did with just a bunch of people. Like really amazing hijinks, getting inside jeeps and just attacking airfields. The documentary is three episodes and it's highly recommended. I really need a TV series about this. I would love it. And I also started watching The Men in the High Castle. And I really enjoyed the first season. I love Rufusil. I have a thing for Rufusil. So it was kind of like a given that I would like this. But it's alternate reality. And it kind of like has an element of time travel. It was like it was meant to be. Kind of? Kind of. I'm not sure yet. I think there is. There is definitely time slip or parallel universes. What about you? Well, speaking of time travel, Ooh. I finally watched Alice Through the Looking Glass, which I was putting off even though I love Mia Wazakowska. It has Johnny Depp in it in one of the main roles. He plays a Mad Hatter, which is a character I love, by the way. So I'm just really upset that it had to be him. Yeah. But I finally watched it and it was about time travel and I didn't hate it. 
In fact, I liked it a lot. Wow. And now I want to watch it. <laughs> I had no idea. Like a whole lot. I want to own it. Wow. I'm surprised. Me too. I'm very surprised. Should I watch it? Yes, you should definitely watch it. Have you seen the first one? You need the first one. I didn't I didn't see the first one, though. You need to see the first one. I'll see if I can find it here. So it helps that Johnny Depp in the movie looks like Elijah Wood because of the makeup that he wears for his character. So I can just pretend that it's Elijah Wood and not Johnny Depp. Oh my god, but they look so different. You need to go look up a picture of the Mad Hatter in these movies. It looks like Elijah Wood because of all the makeup it doesn't look like johnny depp at all in fact when i first saw the poster for the movie i was convinced elijah wood was in this movie wow pretending that it's elijah wood is great because i just i love him he's so wonderful and the story is very sweet the friendship in this movie is so intense that it kind of feels like how i experience romance it leans toward romance but it never goes in on it and it is perfect the romance, is, by the way, is between Alice and the Mad Hatter. What? It's great. I love it. What? Wasn't Alice a child? You have to watch the movies because it's like it's like fanfic of the original stories. Okay. Okay, I've convinced you. Nah, I'm worried. It's got time travel in the second movie. All right, I'll give it a go. Okay, thank you. I also read some books. I've read a bunch of One Piece because I've been doing a read-along of One Piece for Barnes & Noble. If you don't follow One Piece, why? And I don't know if we can be friends if you haven't tried it. Don't you still have your copies, Anna? I do. I have three more volumes here. Who has the time, Renee? You need to make some time and read some One Piece. I've read the beginning of One Piece so many times I've lost count. Not even Goodreads knows how many times I've read them. And even now, after reading them so many times, when I reach the volumes that I'm at now, which is seven, eight, nine, I'm just on my couch, leaking, crying. <laughs> it's like ugly, snot nose, sobbing. Oh, God, I love this manga. It's so good. So I'm having a lot of fun with my read-along, although I just want more people to come and read along with me. But I realize that asking people to read three volumes of a manga per week is maybe a little intense. It's okay, guys. I understand. I also finished another nonfiction book. I read The Tetris Effect by Dan Ackerman. Uh, it's the story of the business of Tetris and how it emerged from Russia. Uh, spoiler! Uh, a man's greed basically set up a situation in which a lot of other men who hadn't created Tetris profited from Tetris before the original creator. Surprise! The narrative is interspersed with asides about how Tetris changed the world, how it was used in research... And I thought it was a really nice history, uh, except the author slides into hagiography quite a bit. He just basically really wanted to set protagonists and antagonists for this book. But surprise, the Russians are the bad guys. In, in fact, it's the Western businessmen who are the bad guys. Oh. So anyway, it was a really interesting book, and I really liked it. If you were into Tetris as a kid, which I definitely was, how many hours did I waste in front of a television playing Tetris? So many. Me too. And then I read Revenger by Alistair Reynolds, which is about two sisters who decide to go on space adventures to earn money to bring home because their father lost it all on bad investments. And everything is going fine until they want to run into a very nasty pirate who all the crews are terrified of. Everything goes wrong and both sisters are kidnapped in opposite directions. It was pretty good, but when I wrote my review, I talked about how the narrative punishes women for wanting autonomy. And I'm completely unimpressed with that entire storyline. And it also needs a sequel because it had all this info dump at the end of the book. And then it just leaves it on the table. And the book ends. But it doesn't seem like it's going to get a sequel. And it's really long, too, which is really confusing. This book was 425 pages. And it felt like double that in some parts. And then at the end, you get all this extra information. And it just does nothing with it. It just leaves it there. And you're like, what? Where's the next book? Where's the next book? Where is it? It doesn't exist. How bizarre. On the plus side, it was one of my first space opera, space adventure books. Was it your first novel by Esther Reynolds? Yep. First thing I've read by him. I don't think I've ever read anything by him. I thought it was pretty well written, although it was... I, I really wanted you to read it because it's... I said on Twitter that it was like uh, a far future science fiction novel banged a Victorian steampunk novel. <laughs> what? So I wrote it on Twitter. 
Yeah, because it's far future, but it sounds like it's a 19th century steampunk novel. And they use all the language they use and the way the society seems to be set up. So you're reading it and it sort of sounds like it's steampunk, but you have to like step back and realize, oh, it's actually really super high tech. The people have just adapted all this old technology from these previous societies into this mass of society that they make work this way. It's very strange. The tone, it's really hard to explain the tone. It sounds very different and interesting. But it's also 425 pages. Yeah, so... Um... You're like, when is that? But I have time for that. <laughs> exactly. And that's uh, all the things that I consumed. I feel like I've been consuming more, but I guess not. One Piece has taken up a bunch of my time. It just feels like I've been doing more. But You have been doing more. It, that's a lot of things that you just said. It's not easy to read nonfiction. It's not easy to read adult science fiction, hardcore science fiction that's like almost 500 pages long. I bet the fonts were super small, so it's really, really a thousand pages. I don't know how big the font was because I read it as an arc and I always crank the font on my arcs up to the highest size I can. Okay. If I don't, I get headaches. Right. We actually consumed a lot of stuff. That was awesome, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. Good job, us. Yes, high fives. Time to explore culture. Anna, what is your first? Today is Monday, 27th of February. Yesterday was the Oscars. I woke up today to find out the clusterfuck that was the best movie <laughs> being presented and what happened with La La Land and Moonlight. The best thing, of course, is that Moonlight won the Oscar and not La La Land. I'm so glad I did not watch it live because that just sounds so embarrassing, so awful in every possible way. But also, the theories about how it happened, it's my favorite thing so far. Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway got the envelope. They opened it. He looked at it, he looked at her, and then she went and she read La La Land. And then La La Land people came in stage and, and then people started running around themselves the producers came on stage to say, well, actually, sorry, it was Moonlight one. And then the producer from La La Land presented the Oscar to Moonlight and everybody thought they were joking. And then Warren Beatty said, well, actually, what happened was that we had the card for Emma Stone's Oscar for La La Land. But then Emma Stone gave an interview saying that, no, she was holding her card the whole time. So what the fuck happened? And I started thinking about it. Is this a conspiracy theory? Is it like they decided last minute to give it to Moonlight because of the way the politics are? But I think what happened is that Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway thought La La Land would win and then just said La La Land without actually reading the card. You do realize what actually happened, right? No, what actually happened? The envelopes are made by a company that counts up the Oscars and then prints the envelope. Right. You can go look up. So it's the comp. You can go look up articles about this because there's like a, a zillion at this point. But probably what happened is that the company had a duplicate card. Instead of handing the presenters the best picture card, they handed them a duplicate of the best actress cards. Yeah. Oh. So uh, your conspiracy theory is sure, but Occam's razor here is the answer is much more simple. It was a printing error. Fuck, man. You're fired. I'm sorry <laughs> to ruin your conspiracy theory. Okay, but that's fine. And I love the Moonlight one. It was a beautiful moment for them to realize what had happened. I'm mad that they are getting overshadowed by the talk about the error. I haven't seen the movie yet. It's not, I don't think it's out here. But I really want to see it. But yes, we're absolutely right. Nobody's talking about the actual movie. Maybe that's what they wanted. No, oh, sorry, here okay. we go. We're back. We're back <laughs> to the conspiracy theories. <laughs> Renee, aliens, remember that. You and your conspiracy theories. Oh my goodness. My first thing is, there is a meme going around Twitter. It's this white guy blinking. You've seen it, right? No, 
I don't think I have. People will say something and then they'll add this gif of this white guy like blinking incredulously. So basically all it is, it's this white guy and he's staring forward. He's staring off screen and suddenly he just blinks like he's surprised or taken aback. And so people will make these little statements on Twitter or on social media, and then they'll add this GIF. Like the one I saw is remixing two GIFs together. I think it was like one of the first ones I actually saw. It's the Arthur Fist meme, you know, where they just post the image of the fist. Have you seen that one? No. Your meme education is bad. I know. So this is a great moment. So you're going to learn something. So there's this cartoon and they've taken a gif of the character's fist. And so people will post it like when they're mad about something. This meme takes that meme and the white guy blinking meme, which is what they're calling this. And they put the gif of his face blinking in Arthur's fist. And the tweet that I saw it on the first time was by Jen Lewis and she attached this gif and said when you're in a fight and they make a good point and it's just this fist that's blinking at you it was so funny and that's I'm like where did this come from and after I saw that that tweet that's I started seeing it everywhere it's like you know that thing happens when you see something for the first time and suddenly it's all around you yeah I was super fascinated so I googled white guy blinking meme and finally I found something that explained it because BuzzFeed did an article about it it's this guy, his name is Drew Scanlon, and he works for a gaming company called Giant Bomb. And way back when he was on this live stream with some friends and one of the, his fellow streamers said, I've been doing some farming with my hoe. And he makes this expression, this blinking expression, because he's surprised he's reacting live to this guy's statement. And it just sat there until somebody pulled it out of the video and made a gif out of it. <laughs> and now he's famous on the internet. So obviously I need to look it up as soon as we finish recording this podcast. Yes, it's great. I love the internet sometimes. It's so... Because this meme isn't... Uh, this is a feel-good meme. It doesn't have a bad origin. The guy who is in it isn't gross in any way that we know of and it's just fun and people are being really creative with it and i love it so much that's pretty cool so now if you see this white guy blinking on your twitter timeline or tumblr timeline you know what his name his name is his name is drew scanlon and he is super excited that he is now a meme (laughs) what's your next thing my next thing is an Instagram that I even shared with you. It's by a photographer from Japan, and it's called Hot Dog Kenobi. So he does action figure art, and he takes picture of action figures posing to great effect. But the action figures that he have is like Marvel and DC characters, and it's just adorable in many ways. Yes, he has a few of them fighting, but most of them is just them hanging together. And there's tons of Tony and Steve photographs of them just like helping each other out, Hunting Pokemons, that is my favorite by far. And then the two of them dancing, and then in the rain, and then Captain America using his shield to protect Tony. It's just amazing. I really, really like them. It's just, it just puts a huge smile on my face. I love fan art. Do you know, I'm so not used to this kind of thing, but of course this is fan art. Of course it is. What else would it be? I didn't think about it. Because mainstream culture strips fan credit from fan creations. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people do uh, action figure fan art for ages and ages. Back in the early aughts, even, I saw people doing that kind of stuff. And it's always been really fascinating. I don't think I've ever seen it before. Congratulations. Welcome to the club. Now that you've seen it, you'll find lots more, I promise. Oh, cool. My next thing is uh, GoFundMe. This young woman who apparently goes by Peaches Monroe, but her name is Kayla Newman, created this phrase called On Fleek. And I've heard this slang, On Fleek. And this girl invented this phrase that it went super, super viral. And after it went viral, she didn't get really any credit for it. And when I found out she was doing a GoFundMe to raise money to start her own line of cosmetics and hair products, I was like, oh, wow, that's super great. And so I'm going to share it because I thought it was like a wonderful opportunity for people who have heard that slang and use that slang to go and donate to this girl's cause because she wants to start her own company, which is amazing. 
She is only 18 and she wants to start her own company, her own business. That's amazing. And she wants to get to 100K. And as of right now, she's at 11,000. So I think it would be really nice if you have some spare dollars to go and donate to her campaign. I love this idea of young women starting their own businesses and living their dreams. She creates language and she wants to start her own small business. I'm impressed. It's hard. It's very hard. You know all about running a small business, don't you? Mm-hmm. It's very hard. So it's been another successful week of culture and finding neat things. Yes, and no politics this time. Eventually, we have to have a break, Anna. And to end this segment, I'm going to cheat and add a thing. Okay, I'll allow it. Exactly. But you'll, you'll love it when I tell you what it is. Okay, go ahead. Naomi Kritzer wrote a Hugo-winning short story called Cat Pictures, Please. And it's becoming a YA novel. What? Yeah. When did you find out about that? Right this second. Somebody just sent me a text going, did you hear? Breaking news. Finally, a breaking news that won't give us a heart attack. I know, right? It's just such great (laughs) news, which is why I shared it. I'm like, breaking news? That's happy. I'll take it. Uh, Naomi Crutcher, thank you. Thank you so much for doing good work and bringing us some optimism. And cats. King of Atolia by Megan Whelan Turner is the third book in the Queen's Thief series and features a beleaguered Atolian guard who I loved named Costas, who is targeted by the King of Atolia, who is struggling with his new kingship. Okay, Anna, here we are. I read the King of Atolia and I liked it. You liked it. Of course you did. I'm not surprised. Okay. Don't need to get smug about it. <laughs> I'm like... I am really not surprised because I know that you have good taste. I know that you are an intelligent person. And of course you would like this book. We just insulted everybody who didn't like this book. I'm sorry. It's the truth. 47 people unsubscribe. Oh my God. I love this book so much. I want to hear about what you liked about it. My problems with Megan Well and Turner's writing continue in this book. She doesn't give you enough to go on. She just throws you in the middle of a situation and she keeps things super close to the chest until it's too late for you to get invested in them. And then you're like, oh, okay, that's how it ends? Great. So there is some emotional distance for me with the story. I really liked Costas a whole lot, although I thought he was kind of an asshole at the beginning. Mm-hmm. As the novel progressed, I ended up really, really, really liking him. And I thought that he was a really interestingly drawn character that she managed to get a lot of depth and sympathy to without changing the fact that he's kind of an asshole. That's an interesting read of this novel. I am not sure I ever thought of Costas as an asshole. I thought he was just fiercely royal toward his queen. And obviously he mistreated Jen, who is the main character of this series. Because he mistrusted him. Yeah, I mean, that's what I mean by him being an asshole. The other thing that you said about the way that she writes and the way that she keeps the narrative close off, it's my favorite thing about her writing. Mm. It's my favorite thing about her writing and how she just slowly reveals things. The things that because I had already read books, books one and two, and I knew exactly that that's her way of doing things. She keeps things under her sleeves and then she just progressively unveils them i was already expecting this to happen here and what i find interesting is that with every single book she does that in a different way so now you have a third person narrative but the viewpoint narrator is something completely new that we had never seen before so before we had like we were inside jen's head and now we are kind of like inside this new person's head and we don't see what Jen is doing. Instead, we see Jen through the eyes of someone who has no reason to trust or like him whatsoever. But we already know who Jen is. We already know what he does. We already trust him. We already love him. So we know that it's only a matter of time for Costas to learn the truth as well about who he is. So that is the, for me, it's, it's the perfect narrative. Is the perfect novel this is i keep 
going around like do I love the Queen of Atolia more or the King of Atolia more I, th I think I I'll say that I love this one more exactly because of that it's someone completely new figuring out who Eugenides is and we're kind of like accomplices we are Jen's accomplices because we know exactly who he is and we just need to wait for the coin to drop inside Scorsese's head here is a part of the book that I cared most about. It was super, super gay. <laughs> Where? <laughs> With Costas and Eris. I don't remember. Oh, shit. A-R-I-S, Eris. It was his friend, who was another young soldier. Because remember, he was going to be murdered, and Costas goes to Jen and be like, only you can save my friend. And I was totally into their friendship, and I wanted more of that friendship. But of course, this is a book about Costas coming to respect and like Jen as a person and see him as something other than somebody trying to steal his queen's kingdom. So you don't get a lot of his sad relationships. But I was super into that one relationship. I'm like, yes, thank you. I don't think I have ever read a review of this book that mentioned this. Most people reviewing books don't go in like going, what dudes in this book make out together? <laughs> Probably that doesn't happen. But what did you think about the romance between Jen and Irene? It was really nicely done. I especially like the fact that Jen fooled them for so long, thinking that they weren't like equal partners. Uh huh. And Costas, when he realizes that they are, that's the turning point. That moment when he finally sees the truth is the point at which he's like, oh, God, this guy. And they become kind of like, not friends exactly. Allies, I would sing. Allies, compatriots. They're not friends yet, but he was just like, oh, this dude. It's when he, it's, you can start to see the fondness start, which I thought was really nice. But I remember like my heart beating so fast in my chest in that scene where he has been hurt and she enters the bedroom and he's like, Irene. And it's the first time that we hear her name. And she goes and she kisses him. Oh. And then even though you knew that that was happening, but it's right there on the page. There's a lot of subtext in this book. The whole, the whole story here, I think it's partly that the expectations, right? It's what they expected of him as their king. And him being like, oh, shit, what have I done? He, his role has been that of a someone on the sidelines, almost, or stealing the thunder as a thief. And now he has this responsibility and he doesn't want to be king and he's not going to steal her kingdom. She is still the effective ruler, but he needs to be her equal companion. And I thought that was really well done, too. Most of this book is about Jen embarrassing everybody and for underestimating him. Not only because he's younger than her, he's shorter than her, he doesn't have a hand. So you have all of this, like, what is power? How do you determine power? And of course, you have a side of people under underestimating this young, disabled person. Part of the novel that got me emotionally was when Costas got dismissed from service. And he was just waiting around to see what was going to happen. I was like, he got dismissed from service. Something bad is about to happen. I know Jin can take care of himself and it's fine. But something bad is about to happen. And I was right. Mm -hmm. That was the most... Like emotional, this narrative managed to get out of me. I'm I'm sad to hear that because this whole book made me so emotional. It's too it's too distant. I don't I don't get enough of the facts to care. They all come out too late for me to get invested in them. So you definitely don't love this as much as I do. I do not. I'm sorry. I mean, it's a good book. I thought I thought it was much better than the thief, which anything could be, be much better than the thief. Oh my god, this conversation is going downhill so fast. I think if you want to feel closer to the characters, this isn't the book. This isn't the series where you go in feeling super, super close to the characters. Not only because of the way she writes, but also because the third person narrative makes it even farther away. Oh, I completely disagree with that. And I know that this book has such a huge following of people who literally love this character so much. The narrative is too distant. It's too far away. I can't get close to it. That pains me. I'm sad. So the character that I cared about the most in this book was the character we spent the most time with. It almost felt like Irene was a non-entity. She didn't have any presence except for what the characters gave her. So we weren't experiencing her. 
we were experiencing how the other characters felt about her. And that's really weird to me, especially in the third person narrative, because I'm expecting to get that kind of re- that kind of feeling, that kind of tone from a first person narrative. So that was really weird how close to Costas it was and how far away everybody else seemed for a third person narrative. That's just what I love the most about the series. I think it's just a problem that I just don't get the emotion from Megan Well and Turner's writing that everybody else does. Oh my god, this conversation is killing me. I'm real sorry. I did not expect this conversation to turn this way. I'm dead. I didn't dislike the book. I space be just died somewhere in the distance. Oh my god, I didn't dislike this book. I gave this book a really high rating, in fact. I am crying internally. Oh my god. Did you read The Conspiracy of Kings? I did. Do we dare talk about it? I don't know if I can. We can some other time, sure. Not this time. We're not talking about it right now. No, we're not. We're having enough trouble talking about King of Atolia. And how I only gave this book four space bees and apparently it's a tragedy. After everything you say, I can't... Like, it doesn't sound like a four space bee book to me. My space bee has died on top of my heart dying. And then now, like, stars are collapsing on themselves. Oh my god. In space, because... My heart is, has been broken so much. If you're done with dramatics, are you finished? <laughs> do you want to keep going? Do you need to add something else? I don't know. Do I? Do I need to go on? How do I even go on? Oh, goodness. How can I go on? I think the problem is that she uses subtext in a way that I don't like and that I can't connect to. And it's not that it's bad or wrong. It's just I can't connect to it. And I'm not the only one. There are other people that I have talked to about these books that said the exact same thing, that the emotional distance is too great because the subtext that she uses and the way that she puts it into her books means that you don't get anchored in the narrative until the end when everything is put into place for you and laid down. And that's going to alienate some readers. That's just how it is. I can appreciate how well she plots her books, which I think are, is very well done. But I think that for me, I need more feelings in the beginning and less mystery. I also want some fanfic for this. I wonder if it exists. Are you okay over there? No, I'm nursing a broken heart. I'm so, I gave this book four space because I don't know what else you want. I want unreserved love. Oh my god, Silas, there is no love. <laughs> the only unreserved love I have for this is at the end of the book where Jen goes and beats everybody's ass with a practice sword. And also all the parts with Costas and Eris. Unreserved love. Loved that. Great relationship. Two thumbs up. Well, I give this book six space bees so that only it can six? ten altogether. Six million space bees. Well, actually not six million space bees. You have to take one off because it died. You're making things worse now. <laughs> Sorry. This is one of my favorite books of all time. And it is and it's great. And I'm not listening. La 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 I have no idea how to summarize Visra by Gabrielle Suelo. Anna, do you know how to summarize this book? It's a secondary world fantasy that's built upon the viscera of gods that have been gone. And those viscera literally sustain the bowels of a great city in which these characters live. You have people that worship these gone-away gods. Two of them are called Rafe and Jassa. And those two people are drug addicts and they need to get their fix all the time. They work for a man called the puppeteer that gives them the drugs in exchange for the viscera of people that they can kill and gather their innards for the puppeteer to use in his evil schemes. One of the people that these two kill turns out to be an immortal that can come back to life. The novel opens with them killing her, disemboweling her. She comes back to life. She sides with a mannequin, which is kind of like a puppet that has been given life in the past and who is looking for his maker. He thinks his maker is a puppeteer, 
So they will follow these two people to try and find this man. And things just go downhill from there. That was a summary. <laughs> it's just impossible to give, to do that with few words because there is so much going on here. And it's such a weird, different novel. It's unlike everything I've read recently or ever. There are a lot more to it than I just said. Yeah, actually, it's really complicated. This book was full of gore, body horror, and organ harvesting. And these things don't gross me out. Body horror in prose doesn't bother me. But I think the problem was that I was bored. Oh, okay. I almost did not finish this book. I got halfway through it and put it down until yesterday when I finally decided I was going to finish it. And I don't know why I was so bored because there is a lot of stuff that, in theory, I should like in this novel. This is a novel about running away from your past, about being honest with yourself and the people around you, and also kind of about fate and whether fate is something that you can control. Like, can you control your own fate or are you destined? And to end up in a place where you don't have any say in it. What choices do you actually get to make in your life? I don't think I agree with the book because I think the book comes down on one side of that equation for this world in particular, and I don't think I agree with the book. Really? Yeah, the, the book seems to be like pro fate. Like you are always going to circle back to where you belong, even if you try to run away from it. I didn't read it like that. I read it as people just making choices for themselves. But what are the choices that make them end up? They Most of them end up back at the beginning of their stories. Oh, really? Because Ashlyn wanted to die. She got that. Rafe wanted to just live as who he was, as a trans man. And he got free of the drugs because the thing that he wanted to do was to be the religious figure to help people get through, which was you know, part of his heritage that was denied to him because of who he was. And he just kept to who he was as a trans man. And in the end, he managed to not only survive, but get on top of Prince Victorious. I thought this book was so hopeful. The way that you described it with the fate and everything, every time I, I hear that, I feel hopeless, right? And I felt that this book was so hopeful. There is revolution, there is bad people dying. The good people surviving. I don't think fate has anything to do with hope. Well, this is probably me making that association. Oh, I wonder why you associate fate, like being attached to a fate with hopelessness. That's interesting. Because then you are stuck to a path where you don't have a choice. That's how I interpret fate. Well, I think the problem was I just was just super bored with this book. And I found the focus on all like the gore and the body horror. It just got to the point where I'm just like, I get it. This world is real. It's real hard. I get it. Oh, look. Yet another scene where we're doing some carving on people. Awesome. Oh, great. One of our main characters is having her organs harvested. Again, super. Well, but she can survive everything. I mean, I know she can survive everything. I'm just like, it got to the point where the gratuitousness of the gore and the body horror, it just felt like too much. I was just like, okay, I get it. I liked how she used it to get what she needed. Because at one point she was kidnapped to have her organs harvested to feed into a monstrosity, a Frankenstein-like creature. And she just allowed herself to be taken so that she could learn about it and then change things. But the problem is that she doesn't change things. She goes with the flow pretty much her whole life. She just goes with how things happen. That's kind of why I talk about fate. She gets what she wants at the end. The problem is that she has lived for such a long time that she forgot who she was, if she ever knew exactly who she was. And she has lived so many lives, has done so many things that she hated herself for doing, including, spoilers, creating the mannequin, Hollis. And I don't find the end particularly hopeful in her case because I know that at the end we see her making a choice that puts her back on the quote-unquote correct path with assurances that what happened to her this time where she forgot who she was won't happen again but I'm like really are you sure oh I I have a more generous reading of that I am hopeful that things will get better in the end. I was hopeful that there was a huge change of everything at that city and that things would get better for everybody. Well, all that happened is that it got buried. And Ashlyn makes a point that eventually people will dig it all up again. So this book is kind of about cycles. 
and how how do you change a cycle that is detrimental to a culture the book ends very hopefully but i'm not sure i buy it on in a long term even though i do there is a point that is made in the novel that for example every time there was a new ruler or a new king things changed completely because every person's a new person right so it might well be that the next ruler will be a tyrant or it will be a good person years before trans people had been welcomed in society and then the ruler changed and they were all most of them anyway executed and if you were trans and the book describes these people as bent and or crosswise which for them is just language that they use to describe themselves the word trans is not used in this book they were hunted down and killed and marginalized and when the book ends, this seems like it's not going to be an issue anymore. Like it's going to, they've gone back to being accepted. Yeah. But they were accepted once before as well. So you see why, I mean, you can see why I'm getting my dubiousness, right? Yes, I can. I think maybe if this little team up that happened had been more united, but at the end, Rafe doesn't know what happens to Ashlyn. Ashlyn doesn't know what's happened to Rafe. It kind of feels splintered and therefore... I have a lot of trouble like believing in a cycle that's not going to end up cycling back to all this horror. I choose to believe. Anna believes in optimism, and I'm just having a moment of pessimism, I guess. I did like the writing a whole lot. I thought it was really, really good. Yeah. I really want to read this person's other book, Dead Boys, because I really, really liked the writing in this book. I thought it was really creative and rich, and considering that most of the writing in the book was about describing terrible things happening to people's bodies. I just thought it was kind of bouncy. I'm trying to think about how to describe, how do you describe a narrative? It just, it just moved. You didn't get bogged down in the writing. I agree. I really liked this. I really, really, I was, I was pleasantly surprised at how much I did like it. I really liked the characters. I really wanted a whole book about Ashlyn, really. In fact, I would read a whole series about any of these characters, except for Tonka, I think, who I did not like at all. I thought she was interesting. She was interesting, but I did not like her. But I really liked Rafe a whole lot, and I liked Ashlyn the most. And even Hollis was interesting. Uh, Hollis was hilarious. Isn't this book a barrel of laughs? <laughs> mm. This book is uh, its horror. It's a horror book. That is dystopian horror would be how fantastical dystopian horror is how I would describe this book. Okay, how many space bees? Hit me. I give it five. I'm giving it three. Sorry, book. I do think people who like Cameron Hurley's work would like this book. Oh, that's an interesting comparison. So I really think that if you like Cameron Hurley's work, you might like this. Peter Newman's The Vagrant is also similar. Those would be nice companion reads, like to see how different people are using these tropes. That's Viscera. It's all in the title. <laughs> Figures is a 2017 movie starring Taraji P. Henson, Janelle Monet, Octavia Spencer, and Mahershala Ali. And it's about computers from the NACA and how they help put a man into orbit. Anna, did you read the book that this was based on, Hidden Figures by Margaret Lee Shirley? No, I did not. Did you? I did read it. I read it before I saw the movie. Oh. The movie itself takes a lot of liberty with timelines. In the book, I'm pretty sure that the women weren't of a similar age. They were spread apart more. Although, that's fine. In the movie, it really, really works. And I totally loved that they changed it to make this group of supported women. Because that's echoing the book and how black women who were educated worked for each other, helped each other get ahead, helped each other look for opportunities... Like, it was a tight-knit group, and people wanted each other to excel. But the book itself explores the days of the NACA, and the movie itself is about NASA. So it's a little bit different. So if you go into the movie first and then go to the book, which I highly recommend because the book is really, really great. It's not like a regular history book at all. It's not academic. It's very much in a storytelling style. And Margaret Lee Shetterly was really close to this area of Virginia where all these things were happening. So she had this excellent perspective and knew a lot of the people involved. So it's a really, really great book. And I learned a ton. 
And I thought the movie did a really, really great job of turning that whole big story in the book into this really nice narrative about race and integration and how to do science and be smart when culture tells you that you should just shut shut up and sit down. Did you like the movie? I loved the movie. I did not read the book. I did not know anything about the history going to the movie. So I watched it completely free of information and I enjoyed it for what it was. I cried, I laughed, I was super engaged, I loved the portrayal of the three women, their friendship, um, the way that they each had their independent role within NASA doing different things and, and going through different things as well. I loved the romance. I loved how Catherine was assertive and bold and questioned Jim when he showed up at first and seemed to underestimate her intelligence and the work that she did, not believing that women could do maths and that she wasn't as smart as she was. And she just continuously questioned him and put him in, into his place. And Mary Jackson was really cool too, very audacious in the way that she wouldn't let her husband put her down. And in the end, he was a really great companion and really supportive of her choice of going back to school and to try to go to a school that was not integrated at the time, because that was the only option that was given her to become an engineer at NASA. What a great inspiring story. Yeah, I really loved this film. Even though I had some problems with how it handled the white people. Yeah, that was what I was going to say next. I thought that it was interesting. I guess is a nice way to say it. And I pointed this out in my review that none of the white people ever apologize to any of these women. The only person who apologizes in this narrative is Jim, Catherine's husband, when he legitimately apologizes to her about his assumptions towards women and math and science. He's the only one to apologize. The white people never apologize. Kevin Costner's character comes across as a little bit of a white savior. Yeah, and they make him into one. Yeah, because he was not in the role that this movie put him. And then later, I learned that that scene with the bathroom, that's definitely a white savior moment, didn't even exist she refused to go to the to use the bathroom in the other building and she just went to the white one. Yeah, they took it away from her and gave it to a white man. Exactly. And I understand why they did it. I, I mean, I get how Hollywood works, but I just don't understand why they had to go backwards like that. Is it because the assumption is that white people would be the ones watching this movie and therefore white people would need someone to admire I mean, probably, yeah. When I was in the theater, they were always, these white people were always clapping and cheering at these parts where they didn't need to be clapping and cheering. I remember during the bathroom scenes where she was running back and forth to the bathroom and people were laughing. They were laughing. Like, oh my God, are you kidding me? I was crying every single time. Like belly laughing over these scenes. And the music underneath it, I also don't really get. It was giving it a comedic feel. I just remember going, this is not funny. I don't understand how any of you are laughing at this. This is not funny. The only way in which this might be humorous is not really white people's thing to laugh at. If this happened, and I'm sure in some cases, this is a moment that probably happened for a lot of black women where they had to inconvenience themselves for structural institutionalized racism. Those parts, they made me so sick to my stomach. It was just so awful. And the fact that everybody just kept telling her off for not being there. And, and the fact that nobody realized what was happening. Which, you know, in a way, it makes sense. Because white privilege, white-centered narratives, you center yourself as the focus of the world, right? And you don't think about what's happening in her life. There were other moments were something that people who have been marginalized might be able to see as universal and then more easily relate to themselves. Like the moments where they don't let Catherine take credit for her work. We've all been in that moment where you do something and then 
as white women, a man takes credit for what you've done. Or people just assume it was done by a man anyway. As far as the movie itself goes, I think this is women did a wonderful job. I have never seen Taraji P. Henson or Janelle Monet act because I don't watch enough media. I know that Henson does Empire, but it's TV and I'm just notoriously bad at television. I didn't know she was an Empire. Now I want to watch it even more. She transforms. Oh my goodness, she's such a good actress. In Empire, she plays this really loudmouthed, super, super bold woman. And she is totally different and, and fantastic. She plays a, a character called Cookie. And she's super different for this role as Catherine. She's quiet and soft-spoken and it's like the exact opposite of her character on Empire. I was just blown away. They were just so, so good. I want to see them in everything. And obviously my fave, Octavia Spencer, was she played Dorothy. She so great. I loved Dorothy's storyline and in the book where she goes and she learns how to use the computers. And also Mary's is interesting as well. She wants to go and become an engineer and she needs to go to school, but she can't because schools aren't integrated. And Virginia actually has a really awful history of public school integration. And if anybody wants to go read about it, just prepare to be horrified. It's really, really bad. Like they closed their schools so they didn't have to integrate. God, this is awful. Most of my problems with this movie come back to what, like, I think that why people are going to take the wrong message away from the film. The movie does its level best to make these white heroes. They are not heroes. They're at basic human decency level zero. They're at baseline. Yeah. Like the guy who knocks down the bathroom sign. Fake moment, but in the context of this narrative, base level zero. That's where he's at. The woman who finally gives Dorothy her promotion, base level zero. That's where she's at. Yep. The judge who lets Mary attend classes, base level zero, human decency. That's where he's at. Like, these are not her heroic narratives for these white people. And that's what I'm terrified that white people are going to take away from this movie instead of how hard that these women had to work and how much bullshit from white people that these women had to put up with. Yeah, like, for example, when Kristen Dunn's character finally says Mrs. Vaughn instead of Dorothy, it's this huge moment, right? It's a huge moment here because there is this problem in Southern culture, which people who are outside the U.S. and don't understand how race works. I was raised not to call black people by their first names if they're older than me so the fact that in the movie it's this big moment it should be a big moment it should like she's she's finally reached base level zero human decency yeah it's the same thing with calling black people a boy or girl don't do it yeah my dad still does it and it every time it happens i'm just like <sighs> it's like that my insides just shrivel up and he won't stop and i can't make him stop but this is a really good movie it's a really good movie. And it's a really good space movie. I love space movies like this. How many space bees do you give this one? Five. Five space bees. Me too. I give it five as well. Even even with the problems as we discussed at length. Well, that's what's going to happen when you have a bunch of white people behind the camera. But I think that the actors in this movie took a product that some white people made and like found some amazing nuance and subtlety and just turned it into this great performance. I'm just so impressed. I want movies with these women all the time, forever. Hire them for everything. Did you see someone say on Twitter that they would love to see a remake of Hocus Pocus with the three of them? <gasps> yes, I saw I saw a thing, remake Hocus Pocus, remake First Wives Club, and I'm like... <gasps> totally. Dear Hollywood, cast these women in everything. Time for Rex. Anna, what have you got for us this week? I read the Unbeatable Squirrel Girls Squirrel Meets the World middle grade novel by Shannon Hale and Dean Hale, and I highly recommend it. It's a great middle grade novel, but it's also a super great orange story for Squirrel Girl that captures the tone of the comics perfectly. And it has tippy toes viewpoint narrative getting inside tiptoe's head is the best thing that has ever happened to me in a long time she is amazing she's awesome she's so like fucking feisty 
a need to read the book about the squirrel now. I think I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10 because it was such a perfect novel. It's a great origin story. It just has like great characters. Doreen's best friend at this stage is a deaf Latino girl who is super good at computers and she helps her a lot. Doreen learns sign language so that she can communicate with her and they become best friends and then there are Iron Man and Black Widow cameos. I'm in. I need this book immediately. Immediately. And Rocket from Guardians of the Galaxy. They become BFFs. What? <laughs> I know! Okay, I'm going to the library today and, fi- and finding this book. You got me. Yeah, and has a, like a super great feeling too. <laughs> so what's your wreck? So I'm back to wrecking fanfic. Who's excited? Yeah! Oh my god! So my rec this week is called The Heavens Tumble, Darling, and I'm by Chibi Squirt, which is a Soulmates AU, where Steve gets a soul mark with his soulmate's handwriting on it, but all it says is CAPTAIN in capital letters. Once he becomes Captain America, that's what everybody calls him, so he's convinced that he'll never find his soulmate. But it's fine, because he'll get to date Tony instead, and it ends exactly like you expect if you're familiar with this trope. And it's super cheerful and wonderful. And I loved it so much. I had so much fun with the story. I'm so glad to hear that. I miss those recommendations. It's only 8,000 words. It's very short. So Anna could read it if she wanted to. Well, I could if I didn't have a 100,000 word fanfiction to read waiting for me. That's true. I'm making you read about 130,000 words of Star Trek fic. Oh my gosh. Where did the extra 30,000 come (laughs) it's a series i gave it all to you with like a list oh my god i told you there was one story you could skip if you wanted to okay no i'm gonna do it properly because i didn't skip any of the atolia books and even though you didn't even like it that much what do you mean i gave it yes i'm still yes i'm still sour about it i gave it four space bees i am lingering i'm so sorry that i've upset anna about the king of Atolia, but this fanfic is super cute if you like Steve Tony, so you definitely should give it a shot if you do. Okay, okay, tell everybody what we're going to discuss next time. Our next Friday episode will come next Friday instead of two Fridays from now, and we will finally be doing our super spoilery fangirl vault discussion of Sunshine by Robbie McKinley. If you've never read Sunshine before this, this is the perfect time to do it. We hope you will join us. It's the end of episode 75. Our music this week is by Boxcat Games and Tukey Beats. Our show art is by Ira. Our transcripts are by Susan, the transcription wizard. You can find links to all their work in our show notes, plus information about the media we discussed. Follow us on Twitter at Fangirl Podcast, especially if you like cool news about bees. And it's interesting to note that there has been a lot of news about bees lately. Our email is fangirlhappyhour at gmail.com and you can write to us at any time. If you like the show, tell a friend. Write us a nice review. We like hearing from you, even if it's just sending us random bee emojis on Twitter or information about bees. They are very welcome. Get some sleep. Remember to drink lots of water. Call your reps. Thanks for listening, Space Bees. See you next episode.
listen to us saying that. I don't like the way I say it. What do you mean you don't like the way you say it? Yeah, I know. It, it's just not, it doesn't have the right amount of energy. Okay. So I'm going to try different ways. Okay. And I'm Anna. No, that sounds stupid. <laughs> I'm just killing you today, aren't I? I'm sorry. Oh my God. <laughs> Carnet, do you like anything? No, Anna, not anymore, apparently. <laughs>